0: Welcome to the series of podcasts for Fintech CTO Club, a community where tech executives learn and share best leadership practices. Here, Vasyl Soloshchuk, CEO of INSART and the author of Fintech CTO Club, will discuss burning topics on the Fintech product development arena with the technical leaders in the industry. This is episode 15 of our podcast. We are going to talk with Arjun Kennan, CTO at Climb Credit, a student lending platform intended to expand student access to quality education.
1: Could you please introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your background in the uh, in, uh, technology space and certainly more specific in fintech and financial services?
0: Absolutely. So, I'm Arjun, I'm the CTO at Climb Credit. Um, our mission is expanding access to quality education. I will get into what all of that means in just a second. Um, I have spent all of my career in technology in fintech. Um, I, I was a physics grad who realized that I like building things more than like being in a lab. Um, and most of my career before this, basically, actually all of my career before this was at BlackRock, where I held a variety of roles. As you know, BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. I held a variety of roles across um, analytics, reporting, uh, developer experience. Um, while I was there, I actually spearheaded um, sort of the first hackathons across the company, um, and was lucky enough to find a great team where we were able to win the first, second, and third hackathons every so three years in a row. We won hackathons that got us to you know build products not only from a technology perspective but also from the perspective of understanding everything around the business, um, and then leveraging that knowledge to build tools that would help the entire organization, and in doing so, got us to, you know, be able to win and present to the executive board of the company. You do that three times in a row. Somebody taps you on the shoulder, and you say, and they say, "You guys are getting good at this uh, building new ideas from scratch kind of stuff." Um, so. Um, why don 't you just do that as your job and so again was fortunate enough to be pulled into leading and building out a team that was focused on very specifically taking blackrock 's analytics around risk that they had built up through you know twenty five years of institutional asset management knowledge and transferring that into products that would make it easy for retail users so financial advisors and their clients to consume so they could be more informed about making choices on where to put their investments. So, you know, took that team from four to about 40 people. Uh, We built out a product that, um, among many other clients, at least publicly counts UBS as one of them, um, where essentially all of the FAs across the company have the same view or have the ability to view risk consistently and be able to offer better advice to all of their clients. Um, So, We spend that out into basically a $40 million plus a year contract just on them. Um, I'm not sure how much more I can add to that because the other clients are confidential. Um, And then at around the time I got introduced to Climb Credit where, um, you know, we were still very, very small at the time. Um, What we do at Climb is that we help students find and finance great education. Um, Mm -hmm. Education today is at least in the US is more expensive than it has ever been. And it's never been more opaque what you get for the time and the money that you put into the education. And it's no secret that in the United States, you know, student loan debt is crushing. Um, it's one of the most massive um, social issues that we face today. It's It overtook credit card debt a few years ago. So that tells you the magnitude of the challenge. Um, and so there's been a shift in focus towards you know, programs and educational institutions that provide vocational skills. So think about coding boot camps as an example, where you're spending an order of magnitude less money, and you are spending six months instead of four years. Um, And for the $10,000 or so that you put into it, you're coming out of it with a $20,000 raise, right? And that represents a significantly higher investment, return on the student's investment in both terms of time and money. Now, the unfortunate reality of the situation is that those types of educational institutions are actually the least supported by financing methods um, that are available to the more traditional institutions, right? Um, In the U.S., you have well-understood mechanisms for student loans, both uh, government and private. But for non-traditional education, that doesn't quite exist, which means actually the people who are making the least amount of money and would benefit the most from this kind of education are those that are most underserved by financial solutions. So what we do at Climb, is their options really are only to swipe a credit card <laughs> or ask friends and family, and that's very hard, right? Like, mm-hmm. And coding boot camps are only a really prominent example. There's... Hundreds and thousands of other types of institutions that provide similar training. Like, think Mm -hmm. about truck driving, think about teacher training. And these are underserved members of society where, you know, they're making $40,000 a year and a $10,000 investment is not trivial. But Mm -hmm. honestly, like, that jump from $40,000 to $60,000 a year Mm -hmm. represents a massive quality and life improvement for them. (laughs) Um, And so, what we do at Climb is that we actually find and diligence and understand what schools and programs offer the best return on the student's investment and we do that not from just from a qualitative perspective but also a quantitative perspective by understanding you know the graduation uh, rates and the placement rates and the outcomes that students actually get and we leverage mm-hmm. that knowledge to actually work with the school to provide financing and use that as part of the input to the pricing of financing options that we provide to students. So that means students are no longer expected to bear the burden of financing just on themselves. It's Mm -hmm. also dependent on the quality of the school, which should actually make sense. If you take out a loan to buy a car, part of the loan is based on the value of the car, not just on your credit score. But that's not true for education, (laughs) right? Like that's very, And so that's kind of how, that's how we approach it. But also Mm -hmm. because of our quantitative understanding, we can set up financial products such that schools participate in the risk of the loan. So they don't get all of the money up front. They get some of it up front and the rest of it Mm -hmm. is when students are actually able to pay back the loan. So schools now are also aligned in terms of incentives to get students to a positive outcome, i.e. getting them a job.
1: And uh, is it like, I I mean, like, how do you evaluate the risk uh, of uh, risk on return? I mean, in your model, uh let's say I want to I want to invest into my ed- education, am I choosing uh what 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 kind of school, what kind of university I would like to mm-hmm. to study at based on the I mean, possibility to get some good job with some income. And uh, uh, if, I, if I understood uh, correctly, how, how does it work? So, but how do you evaluate risk of, uh, you know, do, do you have any risk model behind this?
0: Of course. So risk is a combination of our understanding of likelihood of successful outcome from a macroeconomic perspective mm-hmm. within the industry and for that specific school and program and a combination, mm-hmm. of obviously, the, the student's credit risk, Right. It's not yes. that we're okay. eliminating that from the equation, but all of those factors have to come into play as opposed to just the student. Otherwise, it's just a person alone.
1: Yes, makes sense, okay.
0: Um, and so that's kind of how we evaluate it. And then the other thing that we do to mitigate the risk is again, the structure that we have where schools only get a portion of it upfront and the rest of it after, which means that you know, the upfront from the investor standpoint is actually much lower, which means then we can get more investors to participate. And this all kind of falls into a virtual cycle where more investors are willing to fund students going to good schools. Good schools are continuously aligned and incentivized to grow their, their student base in a positive way. And more students can actually get access to good education. Um, so that ultimately puts us in a place where we can help great students get to great schools and all of them to grow positively. And then we, because of our model, we are then embedded in the stickiest part of the school's business, right? Mm-hmm. And as a lender, we can then start to get real data on how students were doing before and after graduation from a credit and income perspective. And mm-hmm. that means most schools don't have this data, right?
1: That yes, means yes.
0: as we bring this data to, to, to the light... Well, not only can we use it to continuously refine our risk and our pricing, we can also use it to help schools get better because you can say, hey, this program in New York is doing great, but the same program in Washington, D.C. is not doing great, and here's what's happening, which is something that schools would you know, love to know. They, they want to get better, too. Um, but most importantly, over time, as we build this out, I mean, we can help the schools get better, but most importantly... Over time, we can surface this data to students and say, mm-hmm. you know, you're interested in web development in New York. Here are the best ways for you to get um, you know, a positive return on your investment, which mm-hmm. is a very hard thing for a student to be able to do today, because it's a very opaque decision making process. This data is not easily available. And if we do that again, then we are truly fulfilling our mission of expanding access to quality education. And we go from just a financier to a real career transformation platform, because I can say, I can go to Climb and say, I'm interested in web development. How do I make more money? This is your path.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really great. That's really great. So um, just a question about, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure you know uh, the company uh, SoFi, and it looks like you're in the similar space. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe you can tell us um, uh, some differentiators. What, what differentiates you from SoFi? Um,
0: there's That's a great. lot of differences. Um, I'd say, I mean, SoFi is really focused on saying that you know students who went to great schools mm-hmm. got very bad deals. Mm-hmm. But you know that the students who go to great schools get great outcomes. So they're saying they will arbitrage the fact that they got a bad deal to refinance their education at a better rate, right? Whereas, okay. and, and they're basically refinancing where outcomes are actually known for us uh, and, and for traditional schools. Whereas for us, we really focus on non traditional schools. We're not at the Harvards and the Stanfords of the world today. We are really much more in the boot camps and the truck driving schools, right, where we and we are originating the loans by understanding the risk profile. We're not a refinancer. So we're actually okay. like the loans, which is a very yeah. different
1: Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a very interesting uh, career path. So you worked in a large, uh, let's again, okay, biggest financial institution in the wealth management space, actually. Right. Now you are working more like in a startup-like uh, environment. So yes. there are a couple of uh, topics that I would like to discuss. So first of all Excellent. is uh, what what differences do you see, and maybe what uh, differences between challenges. And uh, required skills for CTO or technology manager uh, in uh, in bigger institution
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh, in smaller smaller company. So, what's what are the differences between challenges that you have as a technology leaders and what skills you need to have for both situations? Maybe they are similar, maybe not. So, interesting. So some of them are you.
0: definitely similar. I'd say the most important thing as a technology leader. Um, whether it's in a big company or a small company, is communication, right? Um, At BlackRock, uh, the challenge was much more large-scale communication, especially when it came to um, understanding, uh, especially in the developer advocacy and the developer experience space, but also in the analytics and reporting space, because you have to be able to understand what the business is looking for, and you also have to be able to understand what the technology can do today and what it can do six months from now and put that into sort of a cohesive communication that helps everybody, whether they're technical or non-technical, understand how we are going to get where we need to be. Um, that doesn't really change a lot. Um, I'd say that the ways that you get buy-in for initiatives is very different in a in a larger company versus a smaller company. Um, I think in a larger company, you have to have the skill of like making sure that the key stakeholders are very much Involved, especially because there's, you know, 13,000 other people in the company. In a smaller company, I think the communication skills are very much similar. Again, you have to help people see how we are going to get where we need to get and also what is involved in the process, especially because they are coming from subject matter domains that are different than yours. And so we'll need Um, not education per se, but certainly like an understanding of how you do your work, especially because technology is very different than finance in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the other skill set I think is really your ability to resolve ambiguity and to make decisions has to be 100x what it is at a big company because you have to move fast, right? Um, At a startup, time is very much of the essence, and you're working with very, very limited resources. So you have to be able to make decisions from a place of ambiguity and be able to clearly think about why those decisions are good. Um, but the most important thing is being decisive. Whereas in a big company, I think you can afford to kind of move things forward by consensus. In a startup, ultimately you have, you have to move the decision making forward. Um, that doesn't mean you can just throw away consensus and like, you know, make everybody upset but yeah. it, does, it, it does mean that ultimately you have to take responsibility and say, no problem is not my problem okay. and take ownership um, at, okay. at a very different scale than you would at a large company. Okay. Um, so that's the, that, that I think is the main thing around communication. So some similar skills, but some differentiations as well. Um, obviously the, and this one is very obvious, but um, I think the level of process that you have is very different at a big company than at a small company. Um, Mm -hmm. I think at a big company, you're constantly trying to fight over, like you're constantly trying to work with the processes that exist and try to uh, optimize them. Whereas at a smaller company, especially as a technology leader, it's on you to figure out what is the right level of process for your company. Right, okay. that can be very different depending on whether, you know, you have a distributed team, whether your business model is B two C or B two B, whether you have, you know, other constraints such as regulatory and audit constraints. So, like healthcare and fintech startups have, have to have a higher level of process than, let's say, a social network, right? Um, mm-hmm. It depends on, you know, what are your challenges when it comes to scale, and, um, and depending on that you will have to set the right level of process for your team that helps them move fast. Mm -hmm. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, um, make sure that the right checks and balances exist for you to be able to grow sustainably as a business. Um, Mm -hmm. These are, I mean, these are not very specific to technology, but they do really influence how you build your technology product. Right. Um, Like FinTech companies cannot afford to do things like not, um, checking you know who their customer is okay um, those are yeah. the kinds of things that change a lot
1: yeah certainly certainly and uh, you know the other question here is uh, um, I heard from some people that uh, it's very interesting to work in the uh, so-called broken industries and by broken industries people mean like uh, some bigger uh, industry like you know, financial industry, but you know different parts of it, like mortgage, mortgages, loans, yeah. even wealth management, financial advice, and it's in some kind is broken, broken like yeah. higher fees and uh, not optimized process. Uh, you know, still yeah. lots of paperwork and you know many things. Uh, but uh, yeah, and it's it's interesting to work in the like large broken industry because you can fix so many things. Or at least try to fix them and benefit from that. But my my question here is, uh, what do you think is it easier to do this working in the like bigger company like BlackRock? uh, Because you can have, you know, much resources allocated to solving some specific problem. Uh, Mm -hmm. Definitely, you need to convince uh, the stakeholders, the decision makers to get the funding, but still yeah, you know, with the resources of of the bigger company, not not on the money, but manpower, yeah, legal uh, information, legal, all the support. Yeah. Uh, probably it's it's easier maybe to do or not, mm-hmm. uh, or or it's easier to do with the smaller company where you can you know like move faster, do what you want, uh, not waiting for you know all the decision making uh, processes. Uh, uh, so, yeah. what, but what's, what's your experience, uh, what's, what, what, what could you tell us about like what, where it is easier to, do, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to disrupt the uh, broken industry, was the smaller company or the bigger company,
0: or? That's a great question. Um, I think they each have their advantages, obviously. Um, in a bigger company, especially when you're trying to, I think the hardest thing is trying to get the buy-in to start a disruptive process. But once you do have it, which I was fortunate enough to have, I started when starting a new team. Um, you have basically the the manpower and resources of a big company. So, like things like hiring and attracting talent, and like the legal needs and the marketing needs, kind of come with themselves. So you can easily just focus on building the technology that you need. However, it is also possible that you are ultimately tied to the technology constraints that the company currently has, it's very rare that projects are entirely just greenfield projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there are, I think that has an impact on your pace of iteration, which is very important um, when you're trying to make a new product, because really you only learn by putting the product out there. So those are the, I think that's a very different challenge, but those are things that can be overcome. And certainly if the big company has a very deep understanding of the business and can truly say, here's an idea, go get it. And then like, let you go and like iterate on the product. Then there's no better situation than that. And we're seeing this, right? Like we're seeing the model of like large companies in established spaces, basically just like creating smaller companies that are still owned by them, but are, Approaching it entirely unshackled by the technology, but with still access to the resources that the bigger company provides. So, if you if it works, it's a great situation. Oftentimes, yeah. it can devolve into essentially like it looks like a small team, but really it's just you know the big company doing the same big company thing again. Um, in a mm-hmm. startup, I think the speed of iteration is obviously a massive one, right? Like. Mm-hmm you can learn very, very quickly. And I think that makes it really easy. Um, There is, I think, some level of, it's almost ironic, but there's a level of freedom that comes with having a lot of constraints. Because Mm -hmm. what it tells you is when you have limited resources, you have to, have to, have to prioritize Mm -hmm. and you have to make your bets, which means there's no model thinking about let's do X, but also let's do Y and let's do Z. It's like we have to do X, Y, or Z right now.
1: Yeah, and I think okay. that
0: focus really helps a lot. Um, of course, things like talent acquisition and branding, especially in the early days, are very hard mm-hmm. to come by. But um, mm-hmm. especially in the quote-unquote broken industries, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the advantages that you have as a smaller company is, um, as long as you can prove that you provide value to all of the stakeholders through your product, mm-hmm. and you make sure that you communicate that well. Um, Mm -hmm. it's actually much easier than, I mean, certainly the brand value of a big company comes into play, but, um, it's actually much easier for us in our space because a lot of the schools that we're talking about, vocational schools for climb are also Mm -hmm. small companies in and of themselves. And so it's Mm -hmm. very easy for us to relate to those concerns and build for them. Um, and so those kinds of things are really impactful. Um, -hmm. overall, I mean nobody's going to say no to the resources of a big company and the independence of a small company, but Mm -hmm. very rarely do they come together. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, And I think
0: depending on the industry, you might want to choose the resources or the independence. But in my experience, the independence ultimately wins out because you can learn a lot more and you can, if you fail, you fail faster.
1: Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, so you touched the uh, question regarding the, uh, uh, you know, like attracting talents and uh, uh, branding of the company at the early stages, and uh, uh, the topic I would like to discuss. So it's it's definitely very important to uh, to hire uh, good engineers and to structure your team uh, in the right way, and then be prepared for to scale the team. And uh, there are a couple of questions I would like to. Uh, to discuss so uh, you have uh, experience you know like scaling team from few people uh, engineering team from mm-hmm. few, few people to uh, to like dozens uh, so what's what's your uh, what's your maybe observations what should we should be aware about when you need to scale the team uh, at what point of time uh, do you need to do this decision whether to scale or not uh, and, uh, how to scale the team efficiently and how to structure the team as well, you know, on the early stages, maybe more flat structure, but on the later stages, what kind of structure of the team do you prefer more? Right.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I, I've kind of experienced the scaling in two different scenarios, right? There's the BlackRock one, and then there's the, the climb one. The BlackRock one was very different because again, we had a our hiring budget was basically like unconstrained, more or less, or at least, and, and we had the brand value, so it was very easy for us to bring in engineers and to scale fast. Um, I'd say there it was much more that we already knew that we needed a fairly large team, and it was focused on one product, um, so really it was easy for us to kind of segregate by sort of skill set, so like front end, back end, full stack, um, that kind of skill set, and and like hire for that model. Um, in my view, um, I think that was, that, that's a really good model. If you have one product and you have only one thing to focus on, uh, Mm -hmm. which is great. Um, at climb, I think the way that we did it, um, was, is more different. It's like in a startup, you have to start with generalists who can kind of work on anything that does come up, especially because a lot of your work is in, especially in the initial days when you're building, as you learn is quite unstructured. Um, mm-hmm. And so you need a team that is capable of, again, working with ambiguity and working within, you know, very fluid um, setups, which is different in a, when you're scaling in a big company, you can still kind of hire for people who are, you know, just laser focused on the their own skill set and their own role. And they can mm-hmm. be like, I own this page of this application and I'll take care of this. Whereas mm-hmm. here it's like, it's never not your problem in a startup. So the the mindset of the engineers that you're looking to hire has to be kind of in tune with the scale at which you are at. Um, The second thing I think is, which is really important, especially in a startup is you have to be like to set yourself up for scale, right? Like it's very, very hard if you're just trying to do that by establishing quote unquote rules for the team, Mm -hmm. because everybody has ownership, everybody has autonomy and engineers have Unlimited optionality in terms of what they can do that the right in my view the, the the right way To set up your team for scale, especially in the early days is to nail down. What is unique about your team? What do people actually enjoy and do it as a collaborative exercise like when we were three people in the team We sat down together and said what are our principles? What do we value as a team and what do we want to be true as we grow and what things do we want to change as we grow Um, Mm -hmm. You have to nail down that principles document and again, it's not so much the actual document itself but the collaborative exercise of saying, hey, who are we as a team and what do we Mm -hmm. want as we grow. Once Mm -hmm. you put that in, then the team is bought into its sort of its own identity as a team as a cohesive unit. Mm -hmm. Um, And you establish it in such a way that people coming into the team, you know, you as the leader aren't the only person um, who is kind of embodying the culture, it's the entire team doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, then the structures that you put in place become much more, much more effective, right? Um, okay. The other thing that I think you touched on is, you know, what, what kind of structure actually makes the most sense. So like I said, mm-hmm. when you have a very specific product in a big company, it makes sense to structure by skill set. Um, I think the way we will ultimately approach it, in my view, the ideal structure for a team is by product lines, right? Or by ownership of stakeholders. So for us, it's like we would ultimately love teams that are focused on the student experience, the school experience, the investor experience, and the internal tools experience, right? Because what that then lets you do is create alignment for the team that says, "What is for, I will build what is right for the students. And it promotes autonomous decision-making. Um, and it also gives people goals to go to to um kind of work against right like student experience means we want students to be able to do this in five minutes where it takes them 10 minutes today right okay. um, and, and then then you can have you know generalist engineers in those teams who are able to uh, tackle those problems as they come up it also makes sense then it's easy for them to work with a pm and have a squad that focuses on the stakeholder and then within those teams i like you know as you grow maybe not at the 10% stage but at the 40 50% stage you can then segregate by like skill set so like within the student team you can have front end folks and back end folks and then you can have sub products in there um, but in a startup it's very hard to start i think with just skill set differentiation so it's like you have a front end engineer and a back end engineer because then especially when you're three people and the back end engineer is on vacation are you not going to fix the database <laughs> Yeah, If it blows up. (laughs) Um, And I think in general, like engineering is a job where people like to learn new things and not just be pigeonholed into one thing. So the more you can create roles within the team that offer that flexibility, the more fun it is for your team to to do what they're doing. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is also to have structure that lets them work on their own interests and their own projects outside of what you know we have to do as a company that's not always possible right like as a, as a leader your job is to align the interests of your team and the interests of your company and they're never going to be a hundred percent alignment but you want to always be trying your best so that mm-hmm. everybody is as happy as they possibly can be if you have a happy team everything else is much easier
1: yeah, certainly, certainly makes sense. So you touched the topic about the learning. So it's something that I would like to discuss as well. And uh, you know, many people they say that uh, you know you need to uh, provide the opportunity to your uh, to your to your uh, engineers uh, people to learn through their jobs, mm-hmm. and uh, not just you know to provide the results, but also to be able to learn and uh, become more productive and uh, uh, and have a career path. Uh, through loaning, um, yeah. so my question is so what what do you think regarding uh, you know, providing the loaning opportunity for for your people? Uh, what are the benefits of this? What are the challenges of uh, of this? Uh, uh, because you know for example, when people I mean, if somebody learns and uh, become more productive, become more senior, uh, probably they uh, they would lo- uh, would move to some other company because they don't have the right. opportunity to uh, to uh, continue uh, with the current uh, uh, company because it's not so interesting yeah. for them. As, but what well, what's your opinion about, about learning and also how to do it more efficiently? What yep. what what means are more efficient uh, for yourself for your team? What what have you found found out here?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, I think it's a great question. Obviously, our company itself is all about helping people learn, right? Like, we help people get to great schools. And so we are all about it internally, too. Uh, I think my answer to that, I think there's an old quote, I think this is by, I don't know if it's by Henry Ford or whoever else, where it's like, they were like, Mm -hmm. I think some company setting up learning programs for their employees and an executive asked the CEO, you know, what if we help train our people and then they leave? And the CEO mm-hmm. was like, what if we don't train them in this day?
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I know, <laughs> so it's I know like, this quote. <laughs>
0: uh, and it's like, it's, it's, you want your people to be the best you can be. I also <laughs> think it's, it's a mistake to really think about. I, I don't I didn't think your team is going to be the same forever. Um, it is very natural that people will come in, um, work on what they find fun, and eventually move on, and that's okay. Uh, what you want is for them to be supported and for them to be as effective as they can while they're here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so part of that is obviously learning. Um, And I think learning comes in a few different ways, right? Like there's obviously the very abstract learning of here's a new technology, let's go play around with it. There is the, I think almost the on the job learning of like exposing them to different kinds of projects and different kinds of challenges that they wouldn't that they may not have seen before. Uh, There's also the, and and those can be both, you know, unique to the technology that we use or unique to the business domain, right? Like somebody who comes from a healthcare startup um, and goes to um, a fintech startup may be very, you know, they're very familiar with like understanding how to build technology that is compliant with regulations and audit needs. But somebody who comes from a, like a, you know, like an app development shop into a new start, into a fintech startup might be unfamiliar with that. So for them, that's actually learning, right? Like how do you build your software in a way that is auditable and trackable and transparent? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, there are, I think there are opportunities for learning everywhere, every day, because not everybody knows everything, especially in fintech. Um, yes, and your yes. goal is to have people working at least some of the time on things that are a little bit outside their comfort zone to enable that sort of like ongoing learning. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as the broader learning is concerned, I think one of the things that we've found, and I don't think this is a perfectly solved problem yet. One of the things that we've found is just as a team, trying to have as much knowledge sharing as possible and making sure that that's kind of a focus for the team. Um, It's also, I think we, one of the things that we value just as a team is mentorship. And we want to make sure that like our our senior engineers are helping level up all of our other engineers um, and making that a part of our values actually makes it, you know, actually helps them in understand that this is something that they will want to do. And it helps them in their career because the more people they can level up, the more senior they, you know, the more, the greater their impact across the team. And that's what helps that, that represents real career growth as well. Right. So I think uh, there are probably other things that we can do that we don't do today that it, things like being able to go to group meetups, uh, things like that will be very helpful for us. Um, we're small enough that we just do those things ad hoc. Um, and I think then there's the more formalized thing of do you, does your company provide like, you know, periodic retraining and skills training to your students, things like that, that are interesting. I think those are things that we're continuing to Uh, try and explore. Eventually I think it's every company is going to have to have both structured and unstructured learning as part of their culture because employee retraining is going to become a hot topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's the kind of thing that um, uh, that's the kind of thing that actually we hope to influence as well because we're saying you know, coding bootcamps aren't just for people who are trying to get a first-time job. It's also for people in a big bank who want to learn more about product management so that they can come back and leverage those skills. Um, And so as a product, if we believe in the fact that other companies need to be able to do that, I think the first thing for us to do as a company is that we believe in that ourselves. And we actually have many employees who have, you know, gone to our partner schools to learn different kinds of skill sets, whether it's product management or data analysis or web development, and then come back to help both themselves level up and to be able to be more impactful in their day-to-day jobs. Um, it's something that's very, very close to us.
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So this uh, this definitely makes sense, and uh, um, it's it's. I guess it's, one it's, thing it's, I'll
0: add to that. Sorry uh-huh, to interrupt. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's yeah. Just, yeah I think, uh-huh. I think one challenge here is that it's very hard sometimes to make a tangible case of like, okay, if this, per- from the operational perspective, right? If we spend X dollars to go train this person, what do we get back out of it? It's a very hard question sometimes to answer, right? Yes. And yes. so one thing that you want to be mindful of is just setting the, at, At the executive level, especially if you're a leader in technology, is setting the expectation that like there are things that you can do to help learning in the short term and then things that you can do to help learning in the long term and making sure that like, you know, going to this WordPress class is a very short term thing because it helps us generate content. But sending somebody to a product management class is a long-term thing because it doesn't mean they become a product manager today, but it mm-hmm. means that they now have the skill set and the communication to help streamline their team's workflows. And as their team scales and grows, they will be able to help support that and help their career growth. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's it's just about laying out the benefits of that so that it doesn't become a quote-unquote expense.
1: Yeah, this definitely makes sense. And a practical
0: uh, challenge.
1: I I really like the idea when uh, the company's uh, service or product is aligned with what you do internally, uh, because if, you're, if you if you if you if you aligned with the mission of the company in your actions, then this is definitely beneficial for the whole you know for the whole deliver and results. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so another topic I would like to discuss. So we we talked about people and learning and uh, etc. But uh, uh, I would like to talk about technology a little bit more yeah. uh, when you start uh, when you start any, any, any software project uh, mm-hmm. uh, you are thinking about you know future and how, how you will be able to scale it so but first of all you need to, to bring it to the market mm-hmm. But um, what, what's your experience when, uh when you need to choose uh, you know the technology set the archi- what, what kind of architecture you, you should have? when you build the software product from scratch mm-hmm. and taking into account that, you know, in future, probably you will have a kind of technical depth and you will need to solve it. And yeah. depending on what technologies and what architecture you have selected today, yeah. you will tackle those uh, issues in future if we have a successful project uh, product uh, uh, as uh, from the business perspective. So what's, yeah. what's your experience here? What's your insights on that question?
0: Um, this is also a great question. I think it's one of those questions that there's no one correct answer here. Um, mm-hmm. I think what you want to think about when you start a technology project from the outset is, mm-hmm. one, what is the problem you're solving for today? Mm-hmm. How will that differ from the problem you're solving for in the next 12 months and in the next two years? Okay. Both in, in terms of scale, in terms of the type of customers, in terms of, like, what you need from the, you know, the ability of the business to interact with the products and whether you need, whether you have like critical dependencies, like legal and compliance, right? Um, First, basically what you're trying to do is you don't want to build parts of the business that are not critical, right? You only want to build the things that are critical to your business and you want to use off the box solutions, off the shelf solutions for all the other parts of the business. So for example, like, A big part of our email uh, of our um, business is also like helping make sure that we are able to communicate with our students in a regular cadence. But I'm not going to have my team build a chatbot.
1: Okay, (laughs) we'll just like
0: Intercom and Twilio to communicate with our students instead because those solutions exist. What we really provide is an understanding of the students and going from there. Um, So. Mm you have to have a very strong understanding of what's critical to your business and how that will change over the over the next two years and what's not going to change. I, I like the Bezos question of like, instead of asking yourself what's going to change in five years, ask yourself what's not going to change in five years okay. and try and build for that. Um, right? like customers are always going to want to know more. Customers are always going to want things faster. So mm-hmm. try and try and optimize for that. And then for the things that do change, create as many reversible decisions in the technology as possible. Um, mm-hmm. So I think like you want to optimize for developer speed and flexibility and community support, which actually community support kind of builds into both of those while building the proprietary part of your technology should only be related to the critical parts of your code,
1: everything okay. else,
0: it, especially in a startup, it doesn't matter where it comes from because it will change in two years, it okay. absolutely will change in two years. Um, okay. You also want to make sure you have the right tooling to understand like logging and monitoring, especially in the early years and make sure that you have like, you know, things like hot jar and full story and all of that stuff set up so that you can actually understand how users are interacting with the product. Because in the first two years, you're really optimizing for speed and iteration and learning. Um, the next thing I would do is actually, you have a great community of people around you. If you just Mm -hmm. want to look. So you want to try and talk to people who have built similar things before and understand what specific challenges they faced. I don't think any CTOs or any engineering leader or anybody is an island, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like you, it's, it's, off, it's very rare that you're working on a problem that is just completely unique to you. And even if you are, you know, you're a technology leader. You can break it down into its component parts. And I guarantee you, some of them will be very, very unique to you but a lot of them will be problems that have been solved by others. So Mm -hmm. try and understand where the space is at that time and use that to influence your decision-making. A lot of it is just admitting that technology evolves really fast and you should be able, you should try and keep up, but there's nothing wrong. And in fact, it's a great advantage to be able to ask a peer group, um, you know, such as the CTO networks and, and, and the like, how they have solved different problems before. Because then you get a much more nuanced view than just what you find on the internet. And you don't okay. and then you don't spend six months in R and D.
1: Yes, yes. Makes sense. Um, makes sense.
0: And then eventually so what, I think mm-hmm. you just have to pick something and stick with it for a while. And then just mm-hmm. you have to make an internal contract with yourself and the team to say here's how we will know this is working in the next six months, here's how we will know this is not working in the next six months, and here are all the reversible decisions. So like, we pick Node for this, but if we make sure that everything here is just connecting to a service, then if Node doesn't scale for us, we can switch to something else in six months, Um, right? Okay. Um, Okay. In a startup, that's not always possible. You eventually start with a monolith and then then break it out because you wanna move fast. But Mm -hmm. having that orientation in place really helps you deal with those decisions later on.
1: So what, what's the decision, uh, decision-making process for technolo- to select the technology stack uh, and the architecture uh, architecture strategy for, for the client from scratch and going forward? Maybe you can tell, tell us a few things. Sure,
0: um, I mean, honestly, our stack, so we use an all JavaScript stack end-to-end um, which is very interesting for a FinTech company, but also not that uncommon. Um, mm-hmm. The decision-making here is really simple. Um, the JavaScript end-to-end stack, so like, you know, MongoDB, Express, Node, and then Angular and React, React, React Redux on the front end, was informed by a couple of things. We actually started as a company with an MVP that then became our initial product that was built by a team um, outside of Climb. Um, okay. And so, you know, we, it, it wasn't entirely greenfield for us to start with. But part of the decision making was just, what is you know what is the, the the stack that most engineers will be able to be comfortable with and be able to go up and down the stack, and the answer today, for better or worse, is actually the JavaScript stack, because if you can write you know using the same language and the same types of like idioms across the stack, then you make it very easy for developers to be generalists. Um, The other thing that we really liked was the fact that in MongoDB, you can express your business objects the same way you think about them in the business, as opposed to having to worry about like the, the, the the database schema and the structure and normalization, especially because we knew a lot of that was going to be fluid and change over time. Um, -hmm. and I think that helps us too. like the, the, the idea was to optimize for the speed of iteration as much as possible and for the ability to have you know, the ability to bring on any kind of engineer and have them be comfortable across the stack, no matter where. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, you know, at this point, the JavaScript and NPM ecosystem is probably the most vibrant ecosystem out there. There's a solution. There are like 25 different solutions for everything. Um, so sometimes picking the right one is a little bit of a challenge, but for the most part, um, you know, it's that's actually a great thing. Um, now the challenge with that is obviously like you have Specific questions are like what is okay? The lack of type safety in certain places is now a little bit of a challenge, um, and things like that. But those are decisions mm-hmm. that you have to just say these are the trade-offs that we're making right now. And if yes. we they become challenges in the future, we have ways to solve them. Like I don't know, we'll move to TypeScript or move things to something else that's more statically typed. Um, and and okay. you. Have,
1: Okay. Yeah. So we're running uh, out of time a little bit, but I have few few last questions. Absolutely. Uh, so the one is uh, also to continue the topic regarding the technologies. Uh, the, te- uh, the technical depth is a uh, uh, very important, uh, you mm-hmm. know, issue or challenge. Yeah. Let's say to solve. And uh, on some, uh, I mean, if, if the if the company is successful. Uh, so definitely, you will have some level of, of technical depth in your solution. Yeah. And the question is, so how, how do you specifically tackle with the technical depth? What's your strategy regarding it? What uh, how how to decide whether to you know upgrade to new frameworks or not, to upgrade your architecture right. or not? So what's uh, because because you know from one hand you need to deliver the business features that yeah. uh, are required by your users and clients. From the other. Uh, and uh, you can't do probably uh, this efficiently if you have a certain level of, te- of technical. Exactly.
0: What? So mm-hmm. so I think uh, a couple of things that are very important there are one, I think at the team level, first acknowledging because you, nobody lives in a perfect code base. And the perfect code yeah. base is, you know, is the one that has no code. Um, mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's acknowledging that this will always be something that we deal with over time. You don't want to let the technical debt build up too much, but at the same time, if you only tackle technical debt, then you won't be able to deliver on what the business needs. Um, And so, one, acknowledging that no code base is perfect, and then two, as a team figuring out what are the pieces of technical debt that actually slow us down and which ones can we live with right now is very important. Um, At the executive and leadership level, level, one of the things that makes it hard for teams to work on technical debt is that the business can sometimes not see the value of like why, you know, you're spending your most valuable um, people on fixing something that seemingly has no impact on the customer, right? Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I always do is to say, like very clearly message, 20% of my roadmap time is always about improving the product health. Uh, there's a great talk by, I think, the CTO of Meetup on this, but it's like, it says, okay. don't call it technical debt, call it the health of the product. So it's kind of like going to the gym. It's like brushing your teeth. You have to do these things. Okay. Um, because if you don't, there's a there's serious downside risk. Um, yeah, this interesting I mean, concept in regarding the health. In fintech specifically, technical debt can have disastrous consequences, not just for the platform, but also the business, right? Like, um, Like the Equifax leak was ultimately like, and an upgraded package that wasn't audited properly. Um, And so those are the kinds of things that need the right level of understanding of why they're serious. And it's on you as a technology leader to communicate that to the rest of the team. And then to your team, right, you always have to balance people's desire to constantly be making the code base cleaner and figure out like, you know, you have to figure out what are the things that actually need to be addressed so we can keep moving in the direction we want to. And what are the things that, you know, are nice to have, Right. Mm-hmm. And then for the over time, each of the things that are necessary will become bigger. And so you build them into your project time. And then part of what I do is just make sure that like the team always has a little bit of time left to like work on the things that they want to work on. And then mm-hmm. they naturally will gravitate to picking off the things that, that make sense. Like you want to give them autonomy to fix the technical debt, but mm-hmm. not give them so much lack of structure that that's the only thing that they're doing. Um, okay. And for me, the easiest way to do that is actually make it part of our sprints. Okay. Just be explicit about it.
1: That's cool. Cool. So, uh, just to finalize, uh, what do you think is the most? I mean, in your role as CTO right now, what the most boring part of this role, and what's most motivate uh, the most motivating part of your role?
0: Um. I think you're going to get a different answer from every CTO on that one. (laughs) Um, To me, the most exciting part, the most exciting part for me is just the ability to work cross functionally and to be able to move the product forward in a way that actually helps our users. Um, I often call myself, I'm really more of a product person who happens to have the technical know-how to like build things because Mm -hmm. if I can solve a problem with a fax machine instead of of building a new thing, I will do it. It's about finding the best trade-off there. And so for me, it's the cross-functional work. It's about, like, building the greatest team you possibly can. The people, Mm -hmm. so it's, like, it's the people, the product, and the process are the parts that really excite me. Okay. Um, um, The most boring part is an interesting one. I think it it changes um, depending on when you're talking about things. Um, uh, I'm generally not a person who really likes um, a lot of, like, um, I guess I, I, for me, I'm very much like, my goal is to try and get away from the nitty gritty unless I really need to like dive into the details. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a challenging part for me because I, I really enjoy like getting into the details of things. But mm-hmm. as a CTO, you wanna remove yourself from that. So I think that's the part that I, even though it's an important thing for me, it's it's like eating your greens. Um, yes. It's important to figure out how to pull yourself out of the weeds. Um, Mm -hmm. and for engineers especially um, you know you enjoy being in the weeds that's why you got into the jobs in the first place Um, and so like learning how to do that can be frustrating while you're learning it because you have to pull away from what you love Mm -hmm. Um, but eventually it's worth it because you then give your team the autonomy to do what they want and you've been on the other side of it so you know why you shouldn't do it.